0: Hello friends and welcome back to Reading with Joy. We are on our second week of our book club reading G.K. Chesterton's book Orthodoxy and this week we will be looking at chapter two, The Maniac. Now let me begin this podcast by telling you all that it has been an interesting Monday so far. Um, My computer, first I thought that it was my microphone that had broken because I recorded a, uh, two actually wonderful podcasts, one uh, by myself and then one with a colleague here at Oxford, that then came out all distorted. And at first I thought that it was my microphone, so now I'm using my mother's microphone. But now it appears to be that my uh, I started recording this podcast on my own computer and with a different mic, and it appears that my computer is broken. So this is my second go at doing the podcast. And in addition to this, Every single one of my neighbors seems to be mowing their yard and slash or doing major construction. So if you're listening to this and you hear interesting creaks and whirs and sounds, you may be hearing um, the madness that is my Monday. So I am working to figure out how to record the rest of the episodes on my what appears to be broken computer. It has been very kind to me, low these many years, but I'm trying to make it last one more year for my PhD, uh, but we may yet see if a new computer or a new software Or new hardware may be needed. So uh, bear with me on this crazy Monday, uh, but I'm happy to have figured out a solution. I'm recording on my mom's computer and I'm excited to dive into this week's chapter with you. I have to say, it has been so fun to go and see all of the comments and discussion and questions that you all have brought up over the last week. After reading chapter 1, I think one of my favorite parts is seeing everybody kind of interact with each other and kind of seeing how, you know, it's it can be almost overwhelming for me as the leader of this to see all the different comments, but I love seeing how you all are discussing and answering each other's questions. And as I felt like last year when I did the the Great Divorce as the book club, I feel like I have learned so much already from you all. And so I am so excited to, to dive into this week. Now, before I dive in much further, I thought I would, I would give a quick guide on how to read Chesterton, because this has come up a few times with several people. And um, this has come up because I've had some readers express either that they, were, um, that they were concerned they weren't getting what he was trying to say, or they found his tone a little bit confusing or off-putting. And I wanted to therefore kind of give you a little way into Chesterton because I actually, I think I started Orthodoxy twice um, and didn't finish it. And then when I read it the third time, I just enjoyed it so much. And I thought, what changed between the first time and the third time that made me enjoy it so much? And, and kind of get it in a way that I hadn't gotten it the first two times. And for me, it was really the fact that I had just kind of given in to Chesterton as a writer. I think that uh, Chesterton doesn't write in a straightforward way. So if, you're, if you are thinking, wow, this seems all very roundabout, you are totally right. And I think that that can stress some readers out because you read it kind of thinking, am I getting the point he's making or the argument he's making? And the point is is that Chesterton is not making a step-by-step analytical argument. He's leading you on the journey. He's showing you through the intuitions and the things he's noticed. And what I found is that if you kind of give yourself in to the roller coaster, of his moods and his observations. You'll both enjoy the book more, but you'll also understand it more. So I would say just kind of give in to the madness that is Chesterton. Don't worry about am I understanding every sentence or argument. Um, It's not meant to be understood that way. Part of the whole point of what he's doing is trying to get at those fundamental kind of intuitions we have underneath, but can't quite express in words. So if it sometimes feels like a rabbit trail, that's because he's kind of exploring all those rabbit traily intuitions that we don't quite get. But the thing that I love about Chesterton, and this is what happens if you kind of submit to his way of writing, is that you will often find yourself at the end of a chapter where you think he's been following five disparate threads, um, and it will all resolve in this kind of surprising and beautiful way. And so I would say give into the madness that is Chesterton. Don't worry too much about if you're totally understanding uh, because part of what Chesterton does is not just try to get across an argument but to take you on a journey and to help you discover truth, not just realize it. Also, (laughs) I just have to pause and say, I don't know if you all can hear this, but the neighbor upstairs, it sounds like they're doing laps on the ceiling, going back and forth, and the church bell is going and my neighbor is... um, Is mowing their their lawn. So this is just a lot is happening in my circle of the world. So that's my first little, um, my intuition into Chesterton. And I think the other thing that I would say, and I said this to another reader, uh, is that Chesterton's not just trying to be clever. Part of the reason that he does it in this roundabout way is because he's trying to get at a roundabout truth, if that makes sense. So I had this quote, which I shared with someone else um, about, uh, about why maybe he chooses this way of writing, uh, as opposed to others. And it's this wonderful quote that I really enjoy by, uh, a writer called Martha Nussbaum. And she says, style itself makes its claims, expresses its own sense of what matters. Literary form is not separable from philosophical content, but is itself a part of the content. And I think that what Chesterton wants to communicate is the story of how he came to his belief, and that is more like an untangling of many threads than the tracing out of a clear path. Um, And so often what seem like rabbit trails end up being more resolved than you think they will be. And this was actually really helpfully articulated by one of you um, in your comments on uh, the Facebook page. Erin Romano commented on the Facebook post um, where there was some discussion, and she said, I'm a very visual thinker, and when I thought of making sense versus sense-making, for some reason, lines showed up in my head. When making sense, you're traveling along an already established line and trying to keep it straight as you go to maintain what is recognizable and common. Like in conversation, making sure the hero is following the direction of your thoughts. Whereas sense-making is more of an untangling, bringing order to something that was scrambled, beginning with a sense of direction, but having to make order of it. Does that make sense? And yes, Aaron, I think it does make sense, and it helps us know what it is that Chesterton is trying to do, Um, and and that what he's doing is not mere cleverness or not mere kind of sophistry, but he is trying to do something, but it's different than what we're used to because we're kind of used to someone who makes a clear, straightforward um, step-by-step argument. Um, But he's not not doing that because he can't, because he's a very clever writer who can do that. He's doing that because he's trying to get at more fundamental things. So I hope that clears it up a little bit. Also, my neighbors are now hammering. This is so, so fascinating. Anyway, okay, so I thought with that, we would go ahead and dive into this week's week's chapter. So what I'm going to try to do is kind of just summarize uh, what happens in the chapter and helpfully clarify if you had any questions or kind of what it is that he's generally arguing, trying to get at. And then I'll give you leave you with three um, things I kind of took away from the chapter. And also at the end of this, I'm going to, uh, if you'll notice, Chesterton often will drop in comments about various people, and usually they're not familiar to us. And, um, and so I thought it'd be nice to kind of create a catalog of who these people were. And the reason he does that is because Chesterton was a journalist. That was what he was famous for during his time. And so when he references people, uh, he's not being snobbish or trying to, you know, be really intellectual. He's referencing people who were popular at the time and who would have been his colleagues and his fellow writers. So I will, at the end of all this, give you a little summary of who those people were. So in this chapter, um, we get, yet again, uh, Chesterton describes someone provoking him to write a book. um, And we get kind of where he wants to begin this whole conversation. And what he says is that uh, both the old old ancients with their philosophies and also the new scientists, he says, they all have this inclination to begin with a fact— um, with a foundational kind of first principle. And the first principle that he wants to begin with is sin. So he writes this. They began, the ancient masters of philosophy, with the fact of sin. A fact as practical as potatoes. Whether or no man could be washed in miraculous waters, there was no doubt, at any rate, that he wanted washing. So if we're thinking about how Chesterton came to Christianity, he's beginning with this sense of things he can observe about the world. Um, intuitions and things he see that seem to be true that he sought an answer for or sought a satisfaction for, and this is kind of the beginning principle for him. He says that all of us have this inclination that there is something wrong with the world and something wrong with us, and this is kind of where he feels that we can begin. But this has been complicated because we live in a modern world in which the language of sin um, and even to some extent of morality is kind of been, um, it's been made ambiguous. People no longer speak the language. It seems outdated. It seems like something we would kind of rather not think about. And, um, the way he describes kind of this, this fundamental inclination to believe there's something like sin or there's something wrong with the world is in this way. He says, if it be true, as it certainly is, that a man can feel exquisite happiness in skinning a cat, then the religious philosopher can only draw one of two deductions. He must either deny the existence of God, as all atheists do, or he must deny the present union between God and man, as all Christians do. The new theologians seem to think it a highly rationalistic solution to deny the cat. So basically what Chesterton is saying is that all of us, when we encounter the world, we encounter a certain level of brutality, both in the natural world, but also in in human beings. This ability to do bad things, um, things which we feel intuitively, are morally repugnant. Um, and this either means that we live in a harsh world created by evolution and nothing matters, etc., which is, he leaves it's a very real possibility, um, where everything is defined by our own physiological and biological predispositions to want to survive, or that God has made us beings in his image who are instilled with a sense of moral or natural law uh, and that we can perceive that something is wrong and that we are not totally in union with God. Um, but as he says, the the rationalistic solution lately seems to be to pretend like we didn't skin the cat at all, to so kind of not pay attention to this problem of sin. And so his way of, of resolving this is to say, okay, we may not understand sin um, as a concept anymore, but what we do understand is the idea of madness, He says, though moderns deny the existence of sin, I do not think that they have yet denied the existence of a lunatic asylum. We all agree that there is still the collapse of the intellect as unmistakable as the falling of a house. Men may deny hell, but not as yet Hanwell. And Hanwell was, in his time, a very famous mental asylum in London. So then he goes on to explore um, this idea of madness, um, kind of as a way into understanding how we might think about the brokenness of of uh, of mankind more generally. And I think it's interesting because at first it seems like these things aren't entirely connected. You could say that it seems like he's doing kind of two things. One is he's trying to begin with the first principle of the world is broken. Uh, we're not at one with God. Uh, and then on the other hand, it seems like he's trying to uh, define what it is to be mad. And we might say, well, why do these two things interact? But I think as we'll pick it out, you'll begin to see that what he defines as madness is a mind turned in on itself that thinks it could control and understand everything. Um, And that this is both um, makes up the foundations for what we think of as madness or as, as illness of the mind, as unhealth, but that this is also fundamentally what it is to be sinful, to have this kind of lack of wholeness in human nature more generally. Now the dog outside is barking, um, never-ending distractions this morning, drawing me out of my faultless circle of logic that might make me mad. So that's probably a good thing, according to Chesterton. I digress. Um, So then he launches into this rather surprising defense of poets and of poetry. Uh, and this could seem like one of those moments where you're like, Chesterton, have you forgotten what you were talking about? But no, it all ties in. So he launches into this whole thing about how um, poets are more likely to be sane than scientists. And I'm not entirely sure that this is <laughs> a valid claim to make. Uh, we would need to see some studies on that, Chesterton. But the point that he's making is actually a very sound psychological um, phenomenon, which we can see in action, which is that madness, however we might describe it, or in in more modern terms, we might say um, mental illness or, or not a lack of mental wholeness, does not usually come from an overabundance of imagination, empathy, and affect. It comes from a lack of those things and an overcompensation of reason. And Chesterton attributes this to the idea that logic and reason kind of makes us think that we could contain define and um, understand everything Uh, and this kind of exhausts us whereas poetry allows itself to say poets are contingent they are afloat they are a part of the great mystery of the world so he he writes this which i think is lovely poetry is sane because it floats easily in an infinite sea reason seeks to cross the infinite sea and to make it finite the result is mental exhaustion like the physical exhaustion of mr holbein holbein to accept everything is an exercise, to understand everything is a strain. The poet only desires exaltation and expansion, a world to stretch himself in. The poet only asks to get his head into the heavens. It is the logician who seeks to get the heavens into his head, and it is his head that splits. And so what um, he begins to say is that reason, pure reason, that accepts itself, that thinks it can understand and define everything, has its own kind of faultless logic. But it's actually that faultless logic that is the foundation for madness or for lack of health. And as an example of this, he describes um, kind of three different madmen, one who thinks he's the king of England, uh, one who thinks everyone's stalking him, and one who thinks that he is, is the Christ. And his point that he says is that all of these all of these positions, as irrational as they seem on the outside, uh, can be argued perfectly in a little circle. Um, they have their own kind of internal logic. And um, if you if you say to someone who thinks that everyone's stalking them, you know, if you say to someone who is, oh, what's the word when you are um, paranoid? If you say somebody's paranoid, no, everyone isn't stalking you um, because they have their own kind of internal logic. You can't get out of that. Um, they every bit of evidence shows them. Uh, even if the evidence is, is false every bit of evidence could be explained according to their own logical explanation according to the truth of their understanding even though it's false and because of that his whole point in this is that madness involves this kind of circular reasoning that you can't get people out of and that actually to to have health we have to have an ability to know the restraints of reason, um, that reason cannot go beyond itself. And it's interesting, I think about this um, in the context of some psychological research that people have actually done. I remember when I read um, the book, The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. It's a really interesting read, and it's created great conversations for me. Um, with friends of many different kind of backgrounds. I read it and discussed it with a friend who um, is fairly atheistic in his approach, and it created some really interesting conversations for us. But what he basically talks about is our moral formation and how much of that comes from our more affective or emotional tendencies. And he said that when you see um, sociopaths or psychopaths Their problem is not that they're not, uh, they're too emotional, they're out of control, they're too imaginative. The problem, and this is coming from a clinical psychologist, is that they lack empathy, they lack imagination, they're over-focused on the hyper-individualized details and rational bits of life. They lack the ability to imagine, to feel, to empathize. And so it's being caught in that kind of overly um, circular, rationalistic individualistic mind that actually creates the unhealth in their psychological realities. Anyway, I just thought that was an interesting little anecdote to know that that is corroborated by science, that um, mental illness usually comes not from from an abundance of empathy, but from a lack of it. Um, So maybe Chesterton is not just getting off on his own uh, thoughts about poets. Anyway, so his point is that when you come to deal with this kind of madness, this kind of turned inward Um, the, the, the eternal circle that is very small, as he puts it, he says, um, a, a bullet may be as complete and infinite as the universe, but it is not the universe, which is basically the idea that the madman can get caught in his tiny circle that encompasses everything. He says the way to fix this is, is basically to introduce some sense of the outside world, the lack of complete control. He writes, if you or I were dealing with a mind that was growing morbid, we should be chiefly concerned, not so much to give it arguments as to give it air, to convince it that there was something cleaner and cooler outside the suffocation of a single argument. So then he goes on and he looks at the three madmen, and this is the last example of the madman who he thinks he's the Christ. He says, in the third case of the madman who called himself Christ, if we said what what we felt we should say so you are the creator and redeemer of the world but what a small world it is what a little heaven you must inhabit with angels no bigger than butterflies how sad it must be to be god and an inadequate god is there really no life fuller and no love more marvelous than yours and is it really in your small and painful pity that all flesh must put its faith how much happier you would be how much more of you there would be if the hammer of a higher god could smash your cosmos, scattering stars like spangles, and leave you in the open, free like other men, to look up as well as down. I just love this passage because it shows that health, whether that is mental health or also our ability to think, uh, involves this openness to something beyond and outside of the self. We can tend to think that the way to solve, um, whether it was this kind of um intellectual illness as he's describing, or even our own um, faults and and sicknesses as people or, or faults and sins even would be to just think about it harder to describe it better in our minds to come to the right beliefs and the right conclusions when really it was that very impulse to go inward and to get caught in the circle that made us unwell to begin with And I think this has had very practical implications in my own life and my own struggles with anxiety I think many of you may know this but Um, mental health issues run deeply in my family, particularly OCD. And one of the, um, I mean, one of the letters of OCD is obsessive compulsive disorder, which is that you obsess of things over and over and over again. And I have never been diagnosed with OCD, but I have had kind of anxiety issues. um, And I have tendencies of that and probably would be diagnosed if you put me in longer. Um, But I remember that when I did a bit of counseling, one of the most helpful things to me was that I remember saying to my counselor that I was doing pretty well handling my fears um, because I would think of the fear, I would then think about why that fear was irrational, I would talk myself down, I would be fine, I would get over the fear. But the whole exercise of going in that circle of being like, here's a fear. Nope, you don't really need to be afraid of that fear. See, these are the reasons why. You'll be fine. That was so exhausting to do that over and over again. And I remember her saying, you know... You are, you are very intelligent, um, but the problem is, is that you are exhausting yourself with your intelligence. Not every argument, not every fl- flicker of fear actually needs to be rationally argued with. Sometimes you just need to have the fear pass through your mind and you need to go do something else. You need to have a cup of tea, you need to go talk to a friend, you need to not even give it the time of day. And I think that that's what Chesterton is showing us, is that oftentimes this kind of madness, which we'll come to see how that connects with sin in a minute, Um, is something that we think we can fix by more thinking, when really the belief that is underneath all of that, that we can contain and understand and delineate and reason our way through the universe, is the thing that made us unwell to begin with. And I love how he defines this. He says, in these cases, it is not enough that the unhappy man should desire truth. He must desire health, nothing can save him but a blind hunger for normality like that of a beast a man cannot think himself out of mental evil for it is actually the organ of thought that has become diseased ungovernable and as it were independent he can only be saved by will or faith so let's pause here and kind of remind ourselves of what it is that we've just learned what it is that chesterton has just tried to explain So we'll leave behind the bit about sin for a minute, because we're about to come to that. Um, But he's basically said that we're going to begin by understanding that there's a kind of mental collapse that we can all recognize. And this often comes not from a lack of imagination and empathy and feeling, but from getting caught in what he calls the suffocation of a single argument. Like the man who gets caught going round and round, saying that everyone is chasing him or trying to uh, follow him, and there's nothing that can convince him that that's not true, because with that single argument he can make everything fit um, into his understanding. And that the the answer to this kind of madness is is not to reason one into truth, but it is to break open the the single argument to show that there's much more. That there's much more complexity and health outside of the mind. And the proper use of the mind has to take in its its own stance of, of humility. And so uh, what Chesterton does next is he essentially accuses materialism, which is the belief that everything in the world can be explained as a physical phenomenon. So there's nothing spiritual, there's nothing beyond the firing of our neut- our, our neurons. Um, he accuses materialism of this kind of madness. And to do this, he picks on um, a particular writer who I'll tell you about in a little bit called Mr. Macabre. And he says, he understands everything and everything does not seem worth understanding. His cosmos may be complete and every rivet and cogwheel, but still his cosmos is smaller than our world. Somehow his scheme, like the lucid scheme of a madman, seems unconscious of the alien energies and the large indifference of the earth. It is not thinking of the real things of the earth, of fighting peoples or proud mothers or first love or fear upon the sea. The earth is so very large and the cosmos so very small. The cosmos is about the smallest hole that a man can fit. Hide his head in. So essentially what he's arguing is that Materialism as an explanation covers absolutely everything. In the same way that the man who thinks that everyone is following him cannot be convinced um, that this is not true because his own logic would, would make it so that everything could be a piece of evidence, he argues that you can't, um, you can't really finally and ultimately unexplain materialism. It is possible that everything is purely the product of, um, of physical things but that this understanding of the world seems to be smaller, less complicated. It just seems to leave a lot out of the potential ways that we could explain and experience the world. And I think it's important to say that Chesterton's objection to the materialist mindset is not like, oh, it's very logical and makes sense, therefore it must not be true. But rather that he thinks that their lack of ability to include any evidence that might suggest that something more mysterious or more connected might be possible. Suggests a kind of um, illness of the intellect um, and a lack of of humility and of admission of um, of the complexity that exists in the world. So then he ends with this kind of um, defense of mystery that really to to use our intellects well we must begin with this since of the fact that our intellects will never firmly be able to grasp and contain everything in the world. And if we are to use them well and to come to good conclusions, we have to understand the limits of reason. And something that I actually think is wonderful about this is that in this way, um, Chesterton really anticipated postmodernism. And there's a lot of ways in which you could kind of... Obviously, he we, we think of postmoderns as you know, totally rejecting the idea of there being anything such as truth. But the thing that they did do, which was helpful, was they questioned the idea that we could reason our way to a worldview that totally and completely understood um, the entirety of human nature and the earth, uh, which really was something that didn't really exist before modernism. Uh, there was this sense that as reasoning creatures, we always began in a place of contingency our intellect was a gift that was given to us, not something that we could totally use all on our own. And so I think it's interesting that uh, Chesterton kind of anticipated that failure of modernism to be able to grasp the, the inadequacy of our minds to contain and understand everything um, so far ahead of time. So that is kind of an explanation or a summary I just dropped my notebook, of uh, what happens in this chapter, and I wanted to kind of go through three takeaways for me, uh, for what it makes me think of. Uh, The first thing that really struck me about this chapter, and the first thing that stuck out to me, is his insight into the ways that we have medicalized ideas of spiritual sickness or of sin. And a great example of this can be found in an album, The 1975. I feel like The 1975 are oddly one of the people I go back to a lot, but I think it's because they seemed to me to have some great insights into our world and the things that are going wrong in our world. And this most recent album, a lot of it was taken from the experience of the lead singer, Maddie Healy, having gone to rehab um, for an addiction to heroin, which is obviously a pretty big deal. And there's this song on the album called It's Not Living If It's Not With You. And it reminds me, so the whole this whole song is it's exactly what the what the chorus says and what the lyrics, the title says. It's not living if it's not with you. It's about how he kind of has created this, the center of his life has become this drug and nothing else seems meaningful or purposeful without this central thing. And it's interesting because I think that if you look at that, that's really like an age old um, way of defining idolatry, right? That we've set something other than God at the center of our world to the extent that we need it, but as we need it, it makes us become less and less human. And that could very easily be described as, as how we experience addictions of many kind, that we make something that should not be, maybe it shouldn't be anything in our life, but it certainly shouldn't be the total or the actual or the fullness of our lives. We make that, we set that thing in a place where it becomes central, and the more central it becomes, uh, the less we are able to express or become human. And what's interesting to me is is the way that this is described in almost entirely medical terms in our world, but the ways in which sometimes um, those terms seem inadequate, because it seems like if it were purely medical, then um, rehab would fix all the problems that Maddie Healy has. But what you often hear from addicts, and this is just true for anyone, is that once you take away the addiction, then you're, you're, you reveal that you have all of this pain and all of these human longings and all these things that were that the addiction was covering up underneath. And so we can describe it in medical terms, but it's integrally tied with these very human and very spiritual issues that we might all have. And I think that that is kind of part of why uh, Chesterton, again, very presciently, so, so far ahead of his times, over 100 years ago, describes this inability to talk about sin and connects it with our, with our willingness to talk about madness. Because really, when we get to the heart of it, if we choose anything as our single suffocating argument, whether it is um, reason and rationality or whether it is a drug, if we put that at the center and we make that take up the space of God, if we make the small circle the size of a bullet to try to make an account for the entire universe... Um, we will become less and less human. And he says, we can understand this on a medical sense. We can understand this in, in lunacy, in madness, in our ability to lose, lose, lose sense uh, with what it is to be human and to operate in the world. But lurking just beneath that really is all of these questions about spirituality, about health, and about wholeness as a human, as a person with a soul. And I think that one of the difficulties of our world is that we no longer, especially in in non-religious spaces, have words to describe that struggle as something other than than purely physical or purely uh, a disorder of the mind. And, of course, I'm not saying that to deny the reality of mental illness because that is something that runs in my family, and I'm very thankful for psychologists and for help in that area. But I do think that to purely describe these states as as only a, a battle against... Um, imbalanced hormones or issues in our brains kind of almost dishonors the feeling that we have that there is actually something fundamentally wrong with the world. And that connects to the second thing that comes out to me in this chapter, which is the insufficiency of reason and, um, and kind of the sneaky definition of sin that Chesterton kind of weaves in here, but I think is also connected to an idea of sin in Augustine. And um, and really, the thing that, that he really describes in this chapter is the idea that reason alone becomes um, something that turns in on itself. And this begins, of course, in the very beginning of the chapter when he describes the man who believes in himself. And it ends when he says, "...that publisher who thought the men could get on if they believed in themselves, those seekers after Superman, or the Übermensch, which is Nietzsche, who are always looking for him in the looking-glass, those writers who talk about impressing their personalities instead of creating life for the world. All these people have really only an inch between them and this awful emptiness. Then, when this kindly world all round the man has blackened out like a lie, when friends fade into ghosts and the foundations of the world fail, then when men, believing in nothing and a no man, is alone in his own nightmare, then the great individualistic motto shall be written over him, in avenging irony. The stars will be only dots in the blackness of his brain. His mother's face will be only a sketch in his own insane pencil, the walls of his cell. But over his cell shall be written with dreadful truth. He believes in himself. And I think that to Chesterton, this is the problem with rationality. The problem with thinking that we can think our way to the truth purely within ourselves is that it turns us entirely inward to where we're not able to see the world. We're not able to encounter the mystery that is abundantly beyond us, and I think there's this um, this helpful realization that reason is good, but reason is always taking something that is excessive and complicated and and reducing it to the ability to speak it. Uh, words are always containing, um, they're attempting to capture the abundant reality of life, but they they never truly can. And so, a complete trust in reason is a locking in, a looking inwards to ourselves and not a, not a willingness to say that what we think and what we believe may correspond with reality, but it can never contain it. And interestingly, this is really close to what how Augustine defines sin. Uh, he defines it famously as the incurvatus in se, which is the curving inward upon ourselves. And, um, I think that when when Chesterton describes the mind that is given into pure reason as kind of being imprisoned in its own cell not able to experience the beauty of the world outside when he describes the scientist who's trying to get the heavens into his head rather than the poet who enjoys the heavens this is really what he's describing it is the self turned in on the self and that creates not only madness which we have we have thoroughly seen but also sin an inability to be at one and connecting with others and with God. And I think that's the brilliance of how he actually kind of ties these two things together, even without entirely saying it, is that to to be to sin is to be con- disconnected from God, from others, and from the earth that he created us to be connected in, and in union and harmony with. And um, a madness is a kind of certain circular logic that you can't get out of. And these things are connected because the more that we trust purely and only in reason, the more we get locked in inside of our own world, unable to encounter mystery, to encounter others, and to encounter God. And that is how madness and sin are connected. Chesterton's whole problem with this way of thinking is simply that it is overly confident of itself. It doesn't make room for the possibility that it might not be able to contain, or its thinkers might not be able to contain all information that there is in the entire world, which he puts very simply, and which I will close this section with, Mr. Macab thinks me a slave because I am not allowed to believe in determinism. I think Mr. Macab a slave because he is not allowed to believe in fairies. Um, now, let me go on to the last thing that stuck out to me in this chapter, which is the necessity of mystery. And this goes hand in hand with Chesterton's whole idea of practical romance, that we all desire something which explains the world both as something that is familiar and also something that is entirely strange. And for him, um, mystery or mysticism kind of goes hand in hand with sanity, which he, he says in this beautiful passage. Mysticism keeps men sane. As long as you have mystery, you have health. When you destroy mystery, you create morbidity. An ordinary man has always been sane because the ordinary man has always been a mystic. He has permitted the twilight. He has had one foot in earth and the other in fairyland. He has always left himself free to doubt his gods but, unlike the agnostics of today, free also to believe in them. He has always cared more for truth than consistency. If he, saw truth, um, if he saw two truths that seemed to contradict each other, he would take the true truths and the contradiction along with him. His spiritual sight is stereoscopic. Like his physical sight, he sees two different pictures at once, and yet sees all the better for that. Thus, he always believed that there was such a thing as fate, but such a thing as free will as well. Thus, he believed that children were indeed of the kingdom of heaven, but nevertheless ought to be obedient to the kingdom of earth. He admired youth because it was young and age because it was not. It is exactly this balance of apparent contradictions that has always been the buoyancy of the healthy man. And I love this passage and I think it it helps set us up for what Chesterton is going to do in the rest of this project. Uh, And he says that Christianity is centrifugal. It breaks out. There's a sense of drawing us outward towards the other and not inward towards mere beliefs. And I think this is a wonderful thing because, as he'll begin to explain later, the strange claim of Christianity is that it's less about ideas that we hold and more about claims um, of things that have happened, that Christ was God become man. And in that sense, it draws us out of the realm of mere um, suffocating single ideas, as Chesterton would have it, and into the realm of things that have happened that may, at the cross that opens its arms, the four winds, a signpost to free travelers. So these are the three things I've taken away from this week, that the medicalization of spiritual sickness, the insufficiency of reason alone, and that's connection with the idea of sin. And then finally, the necessity of mystery for health and for spirituality. So, before I close up, I wanted to tell you about three. I think there's actually four, but I only researched three of the famous people that he references in here. It's important to remember that um, he is—he's totally name-dropping. So, Chesterton was a famous journalist. So, when he when he drops these names, uh, it's because most of his disagreements were kind of public. He was the Ross Douthit or the Elizabeth Brunig, or um, I'm trying to think of, I'm not very good with columnists, but he was the columnist of his age that everybody would know and everyone would know who he disagreed with. So a lot of these people are people he had public disagreements with. And I think it's interesting that we all know him, but very few of us know them. So I thought um, I would make a practice and a habit of telling you who these people were. Um, so one that he mentions is Reverend R.J. Campbell, and this was a really interesting fellow to research because he had quite a freckled past. So he's the one that he refers to as not believing in original sin um, and having kind of an otherworldly uh, otherworldly worldview that makes it difficult to kind of reckon with the everyday realities of humans. Um, he was an interesting person. First, he was a Congregationalist minister. Uh, then he got in trouble because he wrote that working men were lazy. Um, what did it say? Un- untithingly... Improvident, immoral, foul mouthed, and untruthful, which of course uh, <laughs> Chesterton would not have done well with, um, as coming from his own conviction. So he got in trouble for that for a while, but then, um, perhaps to repent for this opinion, he then became prominent in socialist circles, and then uh, came to proclaim that the Catholic view of Jesus was the correct one rather than the liberal Protestant view of Jesus. I'm not totally sure what this meant for him. There must have been some kind of discussion of this at the time. It must have had to do with historical Jesus. Anyway, so he went from congregationalist to um, really looking down working class, then becoming prominent in circles, then almost becoming Catholic, then a few months later um, becoming uh, a part of the Baha'i faith and traveling around America preaching that. I think that would have been around the time that Chesterton was picking on him. Um, then he came back and was ordained as an Anglo-Catholic priest at at Cudston, which I know several priests who have come from Cudston, and then ended up uh, in his latter years living a much more calm and um, under the radar life as a canon at the Chichester Cathedral, which, fun fact, is where my brother in law is being ordained. Um, so then, so that's that fellow. He was a bit all over the place. Um, literally all over the place. Uh, we have Congregationalist, Elitist, Socialist, Catholic, Baha'i, Anglo-Catholic, and finally Canon of the Cathedral. And um, Chesterton liked to pick on him because he likes to pick on Chesterton. And people like him. Uh, then we have R.B. Southers, who was an author for a socialist magazine, um, who was very... Adamant that we did not have free will, that no humans had free will, and that's why Chesterton is picking on him. He believed that not from a more um, determinist Calvinist perspective, but from a materialist perspective. So he was not a believer, uh, and he and Chesterton, he's really only famous because he and Chesterton would get into bickerings over this between the two publications. And uh, Chesterton would have known him because Chesterton was uh, very prominent amongst the Christian socialists, so they would have kind of been sparring partners. Then we have Joseph Macab, who of course is the one who thinks, uh, who Chesterton thinks is enslaved because he is not free to believe in fairies. And Macabre was a bit more famous in his own right. He was an ordained Catholic priest who then, um, who threw off the encumbrances of that and became very, very I'm a little bit tired, so I can't say that word. Very, uh, very, ver- mom, are you in this room? How do you say very, Vehemently. Vehemently. No, that was a different word. I, I wanted to <laughs> Ver, Virulent. Anyway, he became very anti-Catholic and anti... Um, virulent? Virulent. He became very anti-religious and anti-Catholic um, and went around decrying all forms of religion uh, and was also vehemently... Um, anti the idea that was very pro-determinism. And a fun fact about him is that he publicly debated Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who is of course the author of Sherlock Holmes, because Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was a spiritualist. So he was a bit on the skids. Uh, he was in no way an orthodox believer, but Arthur Conan Doyle like firmly believed in fairies and um, and macabre did not. So they publicly debated that in the 20s. And I just think that's very amusing that two of uh, the public intellectuals who would who would outlast him in fame both picked on him for not believing in fairies, which I find very amusing. So those are a few of the people that Chesterton references in this particular chapter. And um, and I thought that I would I would say that one of the things that I enjoy most about reading Chesterton are these funny little quippy things he says. And so I've read you some of my favorite quotes, including the bit about Macabre not being free to believe in fairies. Um, but I would love to know in the comments when you all discuss this on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, what were some of your favorite lines? What were the things that made you laugh or that stopped you in your tracks? Uh, that would be a delight for me to hear. And I can't wait to see it. So that concludes this week's episode. I hope that it helped clarify a little bit and that you learned and grew. I would love to hear your thoughts. Uh, So please, I'm going to post this on Tuesday. And then on Wednesday, I will post discussion posts on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And you can also post things about this on social media with the hashtag readingwithjoy. And I will, I kind of check that every once in a while. So I like to go through and like and comment on things. Um, But go on Wednesday and... Uh, tell me what you thought of the chapter, what things stuck out to you, and get into conversation with other friends uh, as well, and answer questions, ask questions, tell me what annoyed you, what you enjoyed, uh, what struck you, and what you found to be enlightening. So thank you all for listening, and I will see you all next week. Make sure to read chapter three by Tuesday, which is The Suicide of Thought. These all have very dramatic titles. Uh, Much love, and I'll talk to you all soon.